The Ear to Asia podcast is made available on the Jakarta Post platform under agreement between the Jakarta Post and the University of Melbourne. Hello, I'm Ali Moore. This is Ear to Asia. I think it's hard to imagine a worse time to be passing a law that would allow mass layoffs than in the middle of the COVID pandemic. It's pretty clear that workers in Indonesia are very low on Jokowi's priorities. There's a lot of younger Indonesians from poor and lower middle class backgrounds who are deeply cynical of the establishment in broader terms. And these laws for them really paint a pretty bleak future. In this episode, the furor and fallout over Indonesia's new omnibus law. Ear to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia research specialist at the University of Melbourne. Despite its unspectacular title, Indonesia's recently enacted omnibus law is front and centre in the national conversation, and it's brought workers, unions and environmentalists out in their thousands in protest. There were huge popular demonstrations across the archipelago in the lead-up to the bill's introduction, and they've continued since the bill became law in early October this year. The 1,000-page legislation is being sold as essential to boosting employment and clearing the way for investment to help counter Indonesia's pandemic-induced economic downturn, with the country falling into its first recession in more than 20 years. Critics of the legislation say there was no meaningful public consultation before the laws rushed passing and that the real winners will be the country's economic elites, with workers and the environment the clear losers. Joining us to read between the lines of this hallmark legislation for Indonesia, a Melbourne Law School Asia Law Specialist, Professor Tim Lindsay, and Murdoch University Politics and International Affairs researcher, Dr Ian Wilson, both long-time observers of Indonesian affairs. Welcome back, Ian, and welcome back, Tim. Thanks, Ali. Yeah, thanks, Ali. Good to be back. This is a huge, if awkwardly named, piece of legislation, as we said. More than a 1,000 pages passed into law in early October. Tim, what is it designed to do? What's in it? Well, this is, as you rightly say, an enormous piece of legislation of over a 1,000 pages, and it's formal name is the job creation law, but that too is somewhat of a misnomer. What it really contains is a whole range of provisions that amend articles in around about 79 existing laws that relate to Indonesia's investment climate and the ease of doing business in Indonesia. And it covers an enormous range of areas, including just bear with me for a second while I run through this list, because this is only a partial list small and medium enterprises, coastal areas and small islands, industrial parks, oil and gas, forestry and environment, labour, film, narcotics, land purchase, tourism, defence, education, health, medicine, weights and measures, nuclear power, planning, agriculture, the Hajj and Halal certification. So, I mean, that's not all of it. It will affect around about 43,000 central government ministerial and regional regulations. So this is a vast piece of legislation covering a whole plethora of areas. And essentially, the president, Joko Widodo Jokowi, says he wants it to boost economic growth and generate job opportunities. Calling it job creation was an obvious ploy to win public support. The bill is not about job creation. Most of it is about regulating business investment to make it easier 
for investors. Indonesia has been notorious for decades and decades for a jungle of rules and permits that obstructs business and so forth. The aim of this legislation is clearly to make life much easier for big business, especially foreign investors, and the oligarchs who um, back Jokowi's administration, including in the legislature. This is part of a pattern of Jokowi's administration. It has pushed through a range of very controversial laws that are favourable to big business, such as revisions of the coal and mineral mining law that were passed in May despite huge controversy. And what he's really hoping this will do is do something about Indonesia's very poor investment performance. The global average of foreign direct investment as a percentage of GDP is around about 4%. Indonesia last year was at 2% thereabouts. It's 52nd in the world and it fell again this year. So Indonesia's never done well in attracting foreign investment because of all these obstructions to business. And Jokowi, from the very outset, when he was first elected, has always said that fixing this and getting a flood of foreign investment into Indonesia was a primary objective of his. In his first term, they launched about 18 separate economic policy packages, but none of them really did anything to fix the core concerns of foreign investors. And although this is the most ambitious attempt yet, I don't think it will either. Ian, is that how you see this bill and how do we balance that job creation as it's officially titled by the government with the perspective of Tim, for example, where it's favourable to big business? I mean, is it not valid to want to improve investment in a country like Indonesia, which does have a very sort of complex record and does need to make some changes to make it a more efficient place to do business? Probably the issue to focus on here when we're talking about job creation is what kinds of jobs will be created by this set of laws. In particular, if you look at the revisions that have been made to 2003 labour laws, this creates the distinct possibility that one impact of omnibus will see a reduction of minimum wages, reductions in severance pay, maternity benefits, health and childcare, and also some analysts have said abolishes legal protections on permanent employment contracts. So it's suggestive of trends that we've seen really globally that this kind of eliminate red tape approach uh, to encourage particular kinds of investment leads to serious deteriorations in basic working conditions and rights. And of course, in Indonesia, the protections for people within formal labour markets have have come at great cost and great struggle. So I think really the question is, okay, it might produce jobs, but what kind of jobs are these going to produce and at what cost to people's rights and basic conditions? And I think that's really sort of been the main focus of critique of these is that it's going to really serve the interests of investors to the detriment of Indonesian working people. Can I just add something to what Ian just said? But specifically among the things that the law does, it makes it much cheaper and easier for companies to get rid of permanent staff. It's reduced the amount of severance pay they have to pay. It's down to 19 months instead of 32 months. And investors for a long time protested about the high levels of severance pay that Indonesia imposed. So this cut, which hugely reduces the amount employers will have to pay when they lay employees off, becomes an incentive for big business to sack employees. And that creates the rather perverse outcome that the so-called job creation law is quite likely to lead to mass layoffs. 
because given the the poor condition the economy is in in Indonesia in recession now many businesses are looking to layoffs and debt restructuring to stabilize their financial positions recognizing that they will need to cut expenses given that recovery is probably a year away so what they can do is now much more cheaply sack large numbers and then as they need to rehire can go to outsourcing companies effectively turning employees into contractors and exposing them to very significant loss of rights because contractors don't get all sorts of social security benefits such as health insurance, accident insurance, death benefits and so on. So these provisions allow a stripping out of protections for workers, cheaper mass layoffs and it really makes that title of job creation a quite bitter irony. And that's why the protests are so significant, because they're being led to a great extent by labour unions. It's not exclusively by labour unions, but labour unions have played a part in leading it. And there have been, since October, more than a 1,000 protesters arrested, hundreds wounded right across Indonesia. And demos are planned for early next week, led again by the unions on the 9th and 10th of November. Before we look more at the protesters and who they are, let's go to that issue of what this legislation is likely to lead to, because how in that context do we consider Jokowi's role? I mean, here is a man who, when he first came to power at least, he presented himself as a man of the people. Here's a country hit incredibly hard by the pandemic. Official predictions have got more than three million people losing their jobs. Why would he introduce something that will make it so patently worse at such a terrible time, Tim? Well, right through his administration, Jokowi's primary concern has been with business. He is a former businessman himself, a, a furniture manufacturer and exporter, and his interest is in the economy and in particular attracting foreign investment and building infrastructure. And they have been his priorities, almost to the exclusion of, of all other issues. Now, his popular style, his uh, blusukan drop-ins where he would meet the common people and so forth, contributed to this aura around him of being a man of the people. And, you know, maybe he was initially, but he's now most certainly an effective and central member of the political elite in Indonesia. And his focus politically has been on creating an elite alliance that will allow him to achieve his big priorities that relate to business and infrastructure construction and so on. And he's done that very effectively. He's built cross-party alliances that give him most of the time between 70 and 80% of the legislature backing his administration. Now, in Indonesia... To succeed politically, you inevitably become embedded in the existing oligarchic systems that dominate politics. And this is because electoral politics campaigning is not supported by significant public funding. There is some funding, but it's pretty trivial. And that means that political parties and individual politicians need enormous sums of money in order to campaign and govern. And that means they need to be funded by powerful tycoons, as they know in an Indonesia conglomerate. So Jokowi, whatever his origins and however he presented himself at the start, was always going to end up intertwined in this web of business and politics, which has been described by many 
observers as an oligarchy that effectively controls the legislature and controls most of Indonesian politics. So you end up in a situation whereby to survive and prosper politically, you need to support this oligarchy, the commercial big business interests. And that sits quite easily with Jokowi's own personal concern for economic growth and for building Indonesia's infrastructure. So many of his earlier commitments that were to do with civil rights and so forth, and his commitments to making inquiries into previous human rights abuses and so forth, which were part of his electoral platform, have all just been completely ignored. That was a Jokowi early on in his attempts to win the presidential office. They're not relevant anymore. So, Ian, if there is this alignment of interest now between the oligarchs and indeed the vision of Jokowi, in a very practical sense, does Jokowi hope that this legislation helps drive investment to the point that it outweighs the negatives? I mean, he, he must be aware of what the potential implications are going to be. Adding to what Tim was saying on, on sort of Jokowi's populist style, I think the substantive style of him as a populist was to sort of manipulate those perceptions as a means of coming from outside of elites and, and moving into elite structures. And the reality is that he's never actually confronted entrenched interests really at any level and at any time in his political career. And I think that reflects also in the omnibus bill to an extent where you saw in the elections last year that there was Great efforts made by Jokowi as part of his re-election campaign to integrate and co-opt significant social groups, Nadlatul Ulama, for example, the largest Islamic organisation in the country, and to engage in particular kinds of sort of a pluralist nationalist discourse as a means of, of integrating a whole number of groups into his coalition. Well, one sort of defining feature of this omnibus bill has been his complete failure or rejection to engage with criticisms, legitimate criticisms from many of those former coalition partners. Nadlatul Ulama, for example, has been very critical of the omnibus bill on multiple levels, arguing that it will you know, undermine national values because it leads to a marketization of education, etc. And so clearly he's at a point now, uh, it seems with this bill, that he feels he doesn't really need to engage with anyone outside of the administration. He's consolidated his power in something that's sort of quite uniquely Indonesian. Uh, his former presidential rival, rather than taking a role in opposition, became the Minister for Defence, Prabowo Subiando. So he's co-opted the main elite forces who may have opposed him. And now I think he feels he doesn't really need to listen. And so he's pushing through with this, I think probably regardless of an awareness that it's going to cause significant disquiet through large sectors of ordinary Indonesian society, but also amongst some of his former coalition partners. I think he simply feels he doesn't have to listen to them anymore. And that's what's alarming a lot of people, that there's a sort of a real despotic kind of atmosphere around this, that he's just really ignoring legitimate criticisms that are coming not just from you know students and labor organizations, but also many of his key allies in his election campaign, which was only just last year. It's not a long time ago. So he's very, very quick to dispense with them in a similar way that Prabowo Subianto in his election campaign, you know, really 
sought to co-opt Islamic sentiment of a particular kind, including being very close with Islamist organisations. And, you know, he dispensed with them almost immediately upon becoming Minister of Defence. And I think Jokowi's showing a similar kind of approach, that populism is really a strategic approach to gain power. And now that they feel they've consolidated power, they don't feel any necessity to engage with those groups. So, so Ian, when you look at those groups that are protesting, you talked about Indonesia's largest Islamic organisation, Nalatul Ulama, that's been involved in the protests. We've got the unions, we've got the students. How united are they? Are they disparate groups protesting at different times or is this a united front against this legislation? I think it's very fragmented and this has been, I guess, certainly from the perspective of those who are opposed to these laws... A reflection of a, a bigger problem that we saw, you know, last year as well. There was the large-scale street mobilisations against the undermining of the KPK, the anti-corruption organisation, the state institution, and that was like the omnibus demonstrations had a particular kind of momentum, but it it quickly sort of unravelled because there wasn't really a sort of a coalescing set of ideas that would hold very different kinds of groups into a coalition that could really become a substantive social movement. I think probably what we're going to be seeing now is trade unions will continue to mobilise and they're the best organised to do this. Uh, Student organisations are still hitting the streets, but with sort of less frequency. You also have sort of broader criticisms, not necessarily reflecting in in mobilisations in the streets from the large Islamic organisations and other religious groups as well, environmental organisations. But the problem is, uh, again, that there isn't really, I don't think, enough to make this hold together, that it will be fragmented and probably sporadic protests. But that isn't necessarily, I think, going to create the momentum that might lead to any sort of substantive change at this point in time. Do you agree, Tim? Yes, I think that's absolutely right. Also, important players in this uh, civil society organisations, NGOs that work on law reform and on policy development, they also regard this law as a travesty. One example of that is Bevitri Susanti, who's a well-known legal scholar and civil society activist. She described the omnibus law as reckless lawmaking or, quote, the worst legislative process in Indonesian history. There has never been such a mess. And that's the sort of view that's taken in among legal circles as well, legal reform circles. So they're playing a part in these protests as well. But this is a government that has some experience of staring down demonstrations and popular discontent with its policies. In the first term, Jokowi himself survived the massive rallies that began against Ahok, the then governor of Jakarta, who had been, of course, the deputy governor of Jakarta under Jokowi and was seen as a close ally of Jokowi. And those protests that brought close to a million people out into the streets of Jakarta mutated into a changed the president movement and marches on the palace and so forth. He survived that, stared that down. And last year, when the Anti-Corruption Commission law was amended to gut it of its powers and make it subject to an oversight committee, again, huge demonstrations were triggered by that law, demanding Jokowi undo it. And they were stared down too. They failed. The law is in place. The Anti-Corruption Commission severely weakened. And these 
demonstrations are, are not in the same league as those ones and it's possible that COVID-19 will mean they won't be. Certainly the government can stare it down. They can even survive deaths if the demonstrations come to that. So, yeah, unfortunately, I think this government doesn't really care because it knows it can survive these sorts of protests and it will just keep going because this is what Jacoby wants to do. Ian, what about responses from regional leaders, particularly given th- this emphasis in part in this legislation on re-centralisation? That's an interesting question in part because we have regional elections coming up in early December and there's been a bit of toing and froing. Initially, before the omnibus laws were passed, you saw some quite significant figures such as Ridwan Kamil, for example, who's the governor of West Java and, and is often touted as a future presidential candidate, being quite vocal in his opposition to the omnibus bill. He attended demonstrations that were organised some, by some of the largest trade unions in West Java, West Java being the site of many of the large sort of manufacturing in Java, certainly. However, sort of hopes from some people that he would emerge as a kind of an establishment opposition figure to this didn't manifest and in the past couple of weeks since it's gone into law he's shifted his position into Ireland he's been arguing for people to respect that this is now the law it's now part of the constitution etc so it seems you know his own opposition was only partial and contingent there has been at a local level you know some candidates in the elections that are coming up around the country who are framing their campaign in opposition to aspects of the omnibus laws. For example, in Medan, in North Sumatra, where Jokowi's son-in-law is in fact running in the election, he's just signed a political contract with trade unions promising that if elected, he will protect minimum wages that may be threatened by the omnibus. So there's some local level kind of opposition and jockeying around these elections. But I think in broader terms, it's been quite disappointing. And even the political parties, there were two political parties that were opposed to omnibus, the Islamist PKS and then the Democrat Party of former President Yudhoyono. This even hasn't necessarily translated into opposition down at the local level because at local level alliances, and when I'm talking about local level, I'm talking about provincial and then Regency and sub-district level, both of those parties are often have alliances with parties that are part of Jokowi's broader coalition. So again, it's been quite fragmented. There have been pockets of sort of political opposition from local political leaders, and that might take a bit of an edge, I think, in the Pilkada or the district elections which are coming up. But unfortunately, I don't think it's really going to be a significant shaping force at this point in time. Tim, has it captured the imagination of the ordinary Indonesian or are we talking about very specific groups that are concerned? I mean, we heard earlier how disparate it was. It hasn't got the broader imagination. That remains to be seen. I mean, the demonstrations that have been taking place since the law was passed by the legislature much earlier this year in April through till now when the president signed it have been quite significant. Um, Now that the law has actually been signed off by the president, we'll just see what happens in the weeks ahead. But I think it's got the potential to capture the imagination of Indonesians, particularly when it starts to be implemented. The really regressive effect of the law across a whole range of sectors, particularly for employment, becomes more obvious. Just to give you an example of how many areas it affects and how regressive many of the consequences are 
look at the environmental law. This law seriously dilutes important environmental safeguards. It amends existing laws so that environmental impact assessments, which have previously been required for most developments, are now only required for projects that have a major impact on the environment and it leaves it to the government to decide. In other words, the government can effectively just waive the requirement for an environmental assessment. It reduces sanctions for environmental offences. It alters the law on planning, giving the government the power to allow deforestation in protected forests and peatlands. And this unravels the benefits of a forestry moratorium declared in 2010, which reduced deforestation to the lowest level in two decades. Now the government can simply issue a decision to allow that sort of forestry to go ahead. It also allows the government to ignore traditional Indigenous communities whose lands are offered in these threatened forest areas and it removes the requirement that provinces maintain a minimum forest cover of 30% and allows them to decide how much cover. So all of this is really an undoing of very significant environmental reforms that have been achieved over the last two decades. And they are obviously likely to greatly assist unscrupulous plantation, logging, mining businesses. And this is a country with serious land conflicts and rapacious illegal forest burning and clearing and significant global emissions. So once this starts to have its effect, there's another group of the Indonesian community who are likely to be affected very badly. You're listening to Ear to Asia from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore and I'm joined by politics and international relations researcher Dr Ian Wilson of Murdoch University and Asia legal expert Professor Tim Lindsay of the Melbourne Law School. We're talking about the controversy around Indonesia's new job creation omnibus bill. And we were just discussing there the environmental impacts of this bill, which brings me to the question of how business has responded, because I know 35 investment firms actually wrote to the government raising environmental concerns around the bill. Indonesia is way down the list, though, for ease of doing business. Ian, has business welcomed this with open arms? Well, I think that probably depends which businesses you're talking about specifically. And as you just mentioned, there has been expressions of concerns from some global investors. There was uh, Viva Investors, for example, and some of the largest asset managers in Japan. And these, you know, ostensibly are the kind of foreign investors that the bill is meant to entice. Uh, and they uh, have made statements to the effect that while they recognize this broader issue of unwieldy red tape that the omnibus laws when it comes to environmental protections actually goes too far and really puts Indonesia's environmental resources and natural habitats at great risk by giving quite an open slather particularly to fossil fuel industries and there's been a lot of highlight in environmental groups criticism of these laws on coal and the kinds of concessions given to the coal industry to open up new areas of forested land. If you look back to, you know, some of the oligarchs and oligarchic networks themselves, including ministers, Indonesian ministers who really were part of pushing these bills through, you know, many of them have very clear and well-documented links to mining and dirty energy industry. So I think, you know, there's a clear conflict of interest here where some of the same political elites involved in pushing the laws through at, by Indonesian standards, extraordinary 
speed. It was only proposed late last year and it came into law a few months later that's really deeply intertwined with vested interests of many of these political elites themselves. Tim, isn't one of the ironies that in fact many of the major concerns of those foreign investors have not been addressed? This is an ease of doing business law for local investors, for the big businesses that support Jokowi's administration. For a long time, foreign investors have been concerned in particular about foreign ownership caps that prevent them from owning a majority in businesses and from local content obligations, that is to say, obligations on them to purchase material or services from local suppliers. These have been primary concerns for foreign investors and a reason why many don't choose to go to Indonesia. The law does nothing about that. It does not alter the foreign ownership caps rules and it doesn't alter the local obligations rules. It does alter the negative list which restricted a whole range of sectors close to foreign investment, opening uh, many more of them to foreign investment. But without change to foreign ownership caps and local content obligations, that's not likely to be a significant inducement for investors. The law also strengthens the role of state-owned enterprises, giving them a more prominent economic priority in the government's policy making, And that raises concerns about unfair competition between the private sector and state-owned enterprises. Foreign investors already feel that they are subject to unfair competition from privileged state-owned enterprises. This law does nothing about that. In fact, it strengthens the position of state-owned enterprises against private industry. So, yes, I agree that it's actually not as attractive as it claims to be for foreign investors. When you put that together with the environmental changes, it may even be a disincentive for some. Ian, you talked about the speed with which this law was passed. How legitimate has the legislative process been? And I know there have been appeals to the Constitutional Court. On what grounds? Can you talk us through the issue of due process? Well, I mean, Jokowi first proposed the omnibus laws in October last year. By November, the Economic Affairs Coordinating Minister, Ilanga Hartato, had already asked Indonesia's Chamber of Commerce and Industry to help set up a task force, which they did, which included prominent business people, but no members of trade unions or environmental groups. And the bill was then submitted to Parliament in February. And because of COVID-19, deliberations didn't start till April. This is, you know, again, by Indonesian standards, an extraordinarily quick process which has rightfully led to significant criticisms that it's bypassed substantive public consultation. Again, in the initial task force, there was no involvement by trade unions or environmental groups, despite the very clear implications of this law for labour and the environment. And there's been significant criticisms about the kind of very sloppy way in which the bill has gone through. There was controversies over, in fact, the wording, the changing of wording, and even once it was passed into law, subsequent typos and revisions are really quite atrocious uh, process. A massive, in terms of size, 800 to 1,000 pages, quickly put together, not properly checked. And so this, I think, now will be um, 
part of what will be hopefully, hopefully in terms of trying to mitigate some of the impacts of this law, a number of constitutional challenges, both in the procedural sense, but also what it means in terms of the impacts on workers and the environment itself. Jokowi has told off his ministers in a very Jokowi kind of way that really what the problem is, is not the substance, but the way that it's been sold to the public. But the process has been sort of transparently rushed transparently chaotic and transparently non-engaging with community and public stakeholders. And, and that's why it is so widely perceived as illegitimate, if not in a legal sense, it's certainly in a moral and political sense. And that's not going to go away anytime soon. Well, what about from a legal sense, Tim, as the legal expert, how do you see the challenges to the constitutional court and indeed the, the process or lack thereof? There's already been at least one petition seeking a review of the omnibus law lodged with the Constitutional Court on Tuesday, that is the day after it was signed into law, and I would expect there'll be quite a number more. The Constitutional Court will probably then consolidate those into one single case. And in reviewing the law, it looks at two issues. First of all, whether the substance of the law is compatible with the Constitution, and there'll be a whole range of arguments about the effect, particularly in relation to the labour law changes. And the second aspect is whether the law was passed in accordance with the formal lawmaking process. This is what's called the formal review. And that will be highly relevant given the sort of chaos that Ian has described. The Constitutional Court has never before knocked out a law on the grounds of a non-compliant lawmaking process. But if ever there was a law where it could be done, it's this one. Just to add a little bit to what Ian said, there is a, a law that requires public consultations and requires circulation of drafts. And the draft bill was never circulated until after it was submitted to the legislature. So it's pretty clear that they missed some basic stages required by the law on lawmaking. Secondly, a bill must be discussed at what's called a legislative council meeting, but that council formed a working committee and handed over discussion to that body. So a proper legislative council discussion never took place, which is a breach of the process. There are a whole range of other pretty obvious breaches in the process that were intended, obviously, to rush this thing through to being passed. And that will be the basis of those complaints about the formal process. Is it possible, is it a possible outcome in reality that the Constitutional Court could strike out this entire piece of legislation? It could. It has done so before in the past and has done so with some very major pieces of legislation. Under Yudhoyono, for example, it struck out a law that created a whole new utilities privatisation scheme. So this is a court that does strike out laws and frequently strikes out provisions in laws. So that's a possibility. Whether it will do it with this law, despite the major formal problems, is questionable because this is a signature law for Jokowi and his administration. And some of the critics of the court have pointed out that just recently, the Jokowi government rushed through a revision to the constitutional court law, which extends the maximum tenure of judges from five to 15 years and allows them to stay in the court till they're 70, which is 10 years longer. In other words, Many of the critics of the government say that this law was intended as a gift to sitting judges to allow them to stay there for longer and in the expectation that judges might go easy on government for that reason. Now, I don't know whether that's true or whether it proves to be the case, but it's one of the reasons why 
how this court now performs when it comes to decide this law is going to receive an enormous amount of attention and be highly controversial in Indonesia. Will that drag on for years? The court deals with these things usually fairly quickly. I would expect it to be dealt with, particularly with an urgent issue like this, within the next six months. And there is a lot to look at. You know, there are so many drafting errors and mistakes and confusions in this law. The law as passed was 1,035 pages and then down to 812, and then back up to 1,028, and then 1,035. And the final one signed off was 1,187 pages. So there were at least at least 158 changes made between the legislature passing it and the president signing it. So there is a lot to look at and a lot that should be of concern to the Constitutional Court, and we'll probably know that fairly soon. Tim, outside the Constitutional Court, are there any ways that this law could be changed or overturned? Like most Indonesian laws, Ali, this law depends on uh, lower level regulations to actually have any effect. So the estimates are it will need up to 49 government regulations just to implement it. And the law actually says they must be passed within three months. That's impossible. This is a huge and time consuming exercise and the regulations will actually determine the detail and the impact of the omnibus law. So we won't really know how it will be applied until those regulations come through and they will likely take quite a while. For example, if we look at labour law, the Labour Ministry has already says that it has to prepare government regulations to deal with the specifics of wages, minimum wage issues and layoffs. They'll have to deal with the actual levels of job loss compensation for workers on contracts. They'll have to set the method for calculating annual adjustments to the minimum wage, which the law doesn't really make clear. So the reality is that until we have those regulations, there's actually not a law that can be implemented. And those regulations might well end up being rather different to the content of the law itself. So it's possible that a lot of the pain in the law may be diluted in the process of implementation. That's not uncommon in Indonesia. Some parts of laws are never implemented at all. So if this becomes politically unsustainable for the government, the obvious solution is just to not produce implementing regulations or to produce regulations that are different to the content. So yes, there is still a chance that the government could quietly step away from the law itself in the regulations as it quite often does. Ian, do you think that that is the only hope of those who fear the implications of this legislation? Does the only hope rest in the constitutional court? Well, in the short term, yes, because that could be an immediate resolution if the court nullifies the laws. I think in the longer term, we're going to be seeing more and more organised opposition from trade unions through religious organisations to others as if the law goes ahead the impacts of it are felt immediately by different sectors of society. That certainly is something that's going to extend on for some time. One of the the really interesting aspects of some of the large demonstrations, and there's been you know a big focus on trade unions and student organisations, and they're almost sort of historically often at the forefront of protest movements. But these particular ones, there's been a huge involvement by high school students and many students who come from technical colleges, so more broadly sort of working class 
backgrounds, uh, the government was very quick to kind of disparage this as young people who didn't really understand what this was about and they're being manipulated by nefarious political actors. But I think really you're seeing a, a significant generational divide as well, where there's a lot of younger Indonesians who are deeply cynical of the establishment in broader terms, including Jokowi and the Jokowi administration. They don't trust the establishment. And these laws for them really paints a pretty bleak future, particularly from those from poor and lower middle class backgrounds that they're really going to be able to get ahead. So I think, you know, in the short term, the hope is that the constitutional court will intervene. I think in the longer term, you're going to see the emergence of new kind of lines of opposition to this administration, the sort of traditional groups of trade unions and religious organisations, but there's a much broader and more sort of politically fragmented generational divide, I think, between a lot of young people who are very unhappy about this on multiple levels and really see this as kind of setting a, a bleak future for them and that you'll see more and more of these groups organising. The police uh, has broadly defined them as anarchists and there are groups that discuss or use anarchist symbols and ideas are fragmented, but the sort of beginnings, I think, of a broader youth-based opposition to this administration that we'll see increasing over the next year or two. Tim, do you agree? You said earlier that you do see potential to capture the imagination of more Indonesians. Do you think that Jokowi is courting real political upheaval in the midst of a pandemic? Yes, I think it's hard to imagine a worse time to be passing a law that would allow mass layoffs than in the middle of the COVID pandemic, at least from the point of view of workers in Indonesia. So it's pretty clear that they are very low on Jokowi's priorities to the extent that he was ever a sort of man of the people. That is something long gone now. What we see instead is an administration locked in to big business that is rushing to push through what it sees as key changes to support the elite while the president is still in office. This is his second term. He can't serve a further term constitutionally. He has about three and a half years or so to go. And it seems as though popular opinion is almost entirely irrelevant. And I think that sort of determination to proceed with extremely controversial laws against public opinion and regardless of the consequences, and as I said earlier, this is not the only instance of that. This is one in a long train of such events. When you add to that mix the consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic in Indonesia and the, the broad mismanagement of it by government, you see a real potential for dissatisfaction spreading, particularly as unemployment increases. Both of you paint a fairly dire picture of the future for Indonesia. Is there, is there any optimism, Ian? Is there any silver lining? If there is going to be a silver lining, it's going to be in the emergence of new kinds of political opposition and social movements. You know, one thing that we've really seen in the COVID-19 where the national government's response has been, you know, so chaotic and in many respects you've got the impression at times that they found the the pandemic an irritation rather than, you know, a crisis where the country really needs leadership, 
the flip side to that is that you know at local levels from you know neighborhood levels to local government levels you've seen some really effective responses to managing the crisis both in terms of public health and some of the economic impacts of great Indonesian traditions of social solidarity. And I think if anything, you know, trying to look for a, a silver lining is impacts of this bill start to bite harder. You will see more of that. You'll see more of local community responses of mutual support and organization, which has always been such a defining feature of Indonesian society. And I guess in terms of trying to look at Indonesia's political trajectory, the hope that some of this may sort of coalesce into more coherent forms of political opposition, seeming as that's not really coming from within parliament itself. It's going to have to be something that comes from outside of government and the parliamentary system. Uh, And I think there's kind of the sort of embryo for that to emerge, but it, it will probably take some time. So if I'm Looking in the, in the broader picture, the silver lining, I think, might be the emergence of these new kinds of social movements that are really focused on answering people's sort of more immediate needs rather than a government, a national government that's looking as if it's really there to placate the interests of big business and is, is in bed with them. And that this disjuncture could lead to something positive in the longer term. But I don't think there's too much to be super optimistic about at this particular point. Tim, can you find any source of optimism? No, it's pretty difficult at the moment. Let me just try and draw a pretty long bow, which is about the problems of civil society. Most reform in Indonesia is driven by civil society. It's the brain's trust of Indonesia. The civil society, NGOs and activists are regarded as amongst the most vibrant in the whole of Asia. And they've been critical to the whole post-Suharto reformasi process. And they've played a very important part in Jokowi's first election. His campaign platform, the Nawachita, was directly aimed at them supporting the sort of civil and political rights, human rights issues that were important to civil society. After he was elected, he seemed to abandon that agenda. And at the last election, civil society split and was polarised, like much of Indonesia, between Jokowi and his opponent, Prabowo. I think now most members of civil society feel they have been betrayed by Jokowi. And I think now, given these regressive laws, the attack on the Anti-Corruption Commission, uh, attempts to amend the criminal code, and now this law, as well as the oil and gas law, I think many will have given up on Jokowi. And that means civil society will need to find a new champion, a new hero to line up behind. Indonesia is always obsessed with who the next president will be. And believe it or not, um, gossip and Discussion is already focusing on the next presidential elections almost four years away. And I think we might see quite a significant shift in civil society and in wider political groupings behind somebody who can present a different profile to that Jokowi is now presenting of yet another member of the elite backing the oligarchs. That's about all I could hope for at the moment. I was going to say, though, the irony being that, of course, at the very beginning, that's exactly how Jokowi was seen. Indonesians have consistently, over the last 20 years, always voted for the candidate they considered to be clean and independent. They thought that was how Jokowi would be as president. So they all keep looking for those new, fresh faces they considered to be independent, clean skins. That doesn't include Jokowi. Who knows who the next one will be? 
they will likely be disappointed because in the end, the political system is such that if you do not join up with the oligarchy, you will not maintain power. Well, Tim and Ian, thank you so much. Absolutely fascinating insights into what is such a crucial period for Indonesia. I know we will be talking again. Thank you so much for talking to Ear to Asia. Thanks. No worries. Thanks, Ellie. Our guests have been Melbourne Law School Asia legal expert, Professor Tim Lindsay, and political and international relations researcher, Dr Ian Wilson of Murdoch University. Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute of the University of Melbourne, Australia. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. And be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, Spotify or SoundCloud. And if you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media. This episode was recorded on the 6th of November 2020. Producers were Eric Van Bemmel and Kelvin Parham of Profactual.com. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2020, the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore. Thanks for your company. <laughs>